The city of New Orleans is steeped with mystery, lore, and legend. One might think of Marie Laveau, the voodoo queen, or perhaps author Anne Rice's Vampire Lestat. R.I.P. Walking along the cobblestone pass with gasolier light posts overhead in one of the oldest cities in America. However, possibly less known was the city's suffering at the hands of its very own Jack the Ripper-style killer for nine years between 1910 and 1919. The tragic events, while less known, left deep scars and rivers of blood. A man who broke into people's homes at night and butchered them where they slept. The man who, unlike any other killer, made a demand for the entire city to play jazz music or risk incurring his most vicious wrath. The man who became known as the Axeman of New Orleans. Join us tonight, if you dare, as we explore this vicious serial killer on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. The Axeman of New Orleans. Serial killer active in the New Orleans, Louisiana area and the surrounding communities from May 1918 to October 1919. And I'm actually going to go back a little earlier than that. Uh, Yeah, there are some similar murders mentioned in 1911. Uh, so the X-Man did mainly seem to target Italian immigrants and Italian Americans. So or grocery store owners, especially. Grocery store owners that come into the to story a quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, it was never properly identified, and the mur- murders technically remain unsolved to this day. Victims were usually attacked with an axe. Often, the axe belonged to the victim themselves. I found that very peculiar. In most cases, uh, a panel on a back door was removed using a chisel, uh, and usually the panel was left on the floor somewhere near the door. The intruder would attack one or more residents with either an axe or a straight razor. Crimes were never motivated by robbery, but as it seemed, nothing was ever nothing, uh, nothing of any value was ever taken. Even though items of value were left out, you know, were out in the yeah, open, jewelry and stuff just totally left. Yeah, uh, some suggest based on the fact that most of the the victims were Italian immigrants or Italian Americans that the mafia may have been involved. And I know the kind black of a, hand, kind of a stereotype. So I don't want to offend anybody with that, but. You know, at the time, they kind of thought that. Criminologists Colin and Damon Wilson believe that the Axeman only killed his male victims when they tried to stop the Axeman from attacking female victims. Hmm. There are a couple of cases where I don't think that's necessarily the truth, but it may have been, you know, it may have been kind of common. And another theory is that he was just attempting to promote jazz music, which again, when we when we get to the letter that he released to the public, you'll find. Oh, wow. Yeah. The, the, it, it's, it's, it's kind of twisted, but yeah. it's definitely, you know, hey, if you... He seemed to be a jazz fan, um, and although he was he was never caught, he was never identified. Even to this day, his identity remains unknown. Um, but there have been various possible people, a lot of speculation that have been have been supposedly you know the the Axeman of New Orleans. Another theory is there could have been uh, you know multi Axemen, if you will, uh, copycats. The story has been touched upon on many websites, short stories, novels, even a graphic novel. And uh, even appeared as a cameo in the TV series American Horror Story. 
it's weird because a lot of things we talk about seem to pop up on that show. Yeah, really, really. I'm going to start off with what I'll call early beginnings that are possible Axemen attacks. Uh, the first documented was August 13th of 1910. Uh, William Taft was president. Mark Twain had just died earlier that year. Americans were entertained coast to coast by a new music composure titled Come Josephine and My Flying Machine. But and music that, and entertainment had weird names back in those days. Very much. That night, corner grocery store owners, Harriet Crutey, I believe is the way you pronounce it, and her husband, husband August, were fast asleep. They had three children, and the family were far from wealthy, but earned a decent living for themselves. Sometime around 3 a.m., the wife, Harriet, awoke to find a shadowy figure standing over her bed. He whispered, Give me money or I will do to you what I've already done to your husband. He held a bloody cleaver in his hand, and as she looked, she spotted her husband, August, lying at the bottom of the bed, bleeding profusely. She handed the man eight dollars quickly that she gathered around from the nightstand, and she cried out, This is all we have. The man then simply turned and walked out the bedroom, grabbed a pet mockingbird in its cage, and left the store through the front door. He tossed the bloody cleaver on the yard outside, opened the bird cage, and flung the scared bird out across the yard. He then sat down for a few minutes, lighting a cigarette, pausing to put on his shoes that he had removed. After finishing his cigarette, he once again stood and calmly walked out into the night. Now, these facts were confirmed by police reports, uh, and the police had come later that same day. Husband August Crutey had suffered multiple injuries to the chest and head, but did survive. August, unfortunately, could not remember any of the details about his attacker, most likely due to his head injuries. The police did find a door that had been pried open using what was called a railroad shoe pin and found the bloody cleaver in the yard that had actually been recently reported stolen. His wife Harriet, however, did remember a lot about the man. She described him as clean-shaven, about 36 years old, about 5 foot 6 inches tall, stated that he had a rough, gruff voice, was dressed in working man's attire, and sported a black derby-style hat. The police inspector, a 20-year veteran by the name Jim Reynolds, had many questions that in his long-term service seemed a bit odd. Number one, why did the suspect not search the shop for more money or valuables? Number two, why did he leave a witness who clearly got a very good view of him? And number three, why did he take such a long time at the scene of the crime in the bedroom and take time to set out on the front porch and smoke a cigarette? They quickly suspected a drug user or possibly a mentally insane person as a primary suspect. They arrested a local morphine addict with criminal background by the name of John T. Flannery. He was declared a menace to society and a safety risk to the community. He was admitted to the criminal branch of the insane asylum at Jackson. All seemed to be an open and shut case, or so they thought. Just a little over a month later, September 20th, 1910, at approximately 1.45 a.m., uh, once again, at a store and home of Joseph and Concietta Rosetto was broken into using a meat axe to attack the wife repeatedly in the face and neck. He then turned his attention to the husband, Joseph, hitting him twice, once across the nose and again in the eye. Ow. Joseph, while fighting the pain and struggling to see, rolled over to retrieve a pistol and fired several shots in the direction of the attacker, but he was already gone. Wife, Concietra, was not expected to survive her injuries, but miraculously did. Her husband, Joseph, was disfigured with most of his nose cut away 
and was permanently blinded. These injuries would eventually lead to his death a few years later. As with the first incident, again a month prior, the attacker removed his shoes before entering the home. He again entered through a back door by prying out a panel of the wooden door. Again, took nothing of real value, nor ransacked and robbed the rest of the establishment. The mental morphine drug user, Mr. John Flannery, was later released from jail, obviously because they had locked away the wrong man. However, it was almost a year later, as it seemed law enforcement apparently drugged their feet for the dismissal of him to get him released. With these Axeman cases, it seems like they're quick to accuse and almost every time get it wrong. Yes. And, and again, these, these cases here, any, anything prior to 1918 is not technically considered as part of the Axeman right. murders. So These cases, um, like if you go on the internet, you, you won't find these early cases. Uh, no, but, they, but the MO is the same. I uh, purchased a book, uh, and it was called The Axeman of New Orleans. Oh, so you cheated by reading. I cheated by reading. <laughs> and that's where I got a lot of this uh, early information. And as we talked about, most stories have been elaborated. And, you know, not saying that there's not some truth there, but again, the, the main part has been lost. And uh, the author of the book had went back and, and truly went through police records and newspaper clippings and tried to get more to the source per se. Well, the, even to this day, they say what it, there's as many as 200 active serial killers in the United States that, that we're not aware of, you know, I'm just going to kind of go out there a little bit. Me and my son have been watching Dexter. So, mm -hmm. you know, Dexter is about serial killers yeah. and, and, and Very popular some series. of their patterns, even, you know, the, the couple that you've covered so far, and I believe you have at least one or two more, mm -hmm. you're going to see a pattern. Mm -hmm. There is a distinct pattern in what the Axeman does. And I would absolutely say that these, these particular murders should absolutely be included. They are very the close. The MO is almost MO. identical. Yes, yes. Now, local newspapers uh, at this time eventually and national exposure started releasing stories on uh, the New Orleans Jack the Axe, as he was called, murderer. Uh, and, of course, it was a play off of America's own version of Jack the Ripper from across the pond who had went on just a few years before this. An early nickname was also given to him called The Cleaver, uh, since in some of these earlier attacks, a meat cleaver was actually used rather than the traditional axe. To kind of put things into perspective, as Bill and I were talking, with the large, mysterious city of New Orleans, in that year of 1910, there was a documented, I believe it was 52 possible murders for that entire year. Many were easily explained deaths. You might expect uh, things along the lines of a drunken bar fight, a cheating husband or a wife. But to have someone break into a home in this type of a scenario was actually quite rare. This was above and beyond. Which this leads us to a third attack. Uh, this was in June 27th of 1911. So we're talking um, eight, nine months after the last. Sometime during the night of June 27th, 1911, uh, once again, the home of a grocery store owner of Joseph and Mary Davy um, was the killer's next visit. Mary had been awakened once again by a whispering man, where is your money? But she was too scared to even reply. The man then grabbed a nearby mug, striking her over the head. When she awoke from being unconscious several hours later, she found her husband severely wounded. Literally bits of his skull and brains were all over the bed. The attacker had struck her husband so hard he actually collapsed part of the bed and mattress frame where he had laid in bed. My God. Pretty brutal. Help finally arrived about 5.30 that morning when a customer attempted to gain entry into the shop and heard the calls for help. 
Joseph was so tragically attacked that literally part of his brain was outside of the skull when the ambulance arrived. He had no chance to survive, despite that he did hold on for 30 hours. His new bride was five months pregnant, and he would never get to see their child born. Once again, police had found a railroad shoe pin that had been used to enter the residence and business, this time through a window, however, rather than a back door. Although the weapon was never found based upon the attacks and the wounds, the police did believe it was the same type of butcher's cleaver or possibly a hatchet. When Mary was questioned, she described her attacker as, once again, clean-shaven, about 5 foot 8 inches tall, a working man's outfit, and had clear white skin tone. Sound familiar? Now, helping to put things in perspective, as Bill again uh, and I were talking, police investigations were still in their infancy. There was no preserving of the crime scene. That had never even been dreamed up at this point. The term serial killer would not be coined for another 50 years. And at best, police went from a gut instinct and had at most two trained officers in the precinct that would literally physically do measurements of facial dimensions, weight and height, and recorded on index cards to be filed away. Fingerprinting would not become available until 1918, nearly a decade later. Often, police of the time would arrest someone of interest when they could be in, uh, interrogated very heavily without the laws protecting, which included torture to get a yeah, confession. I was going to say their definition of interrogation was a little different yeah. back then. Yeah. And in this case, the police even offered, at, at this time, a $200 reward for any information uh, that could help lead them to the killer. It seems like a good chunk of money for the time. Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, you're talking 1911, $200. I'm not sure what that equates yeah. to, but that would be several thousand, you know, in today's standards. There was a few leads that came in, but again, most of them were quickly dismissed. Many New Orleans suspected the killings were a mob related, as we had talked about. There was a group called the Black Hand. However, up to this date, nothing was ever tied directly to them, nor did they claim to be. Often, mob members would later brag or accept that, you know, we did this. There was none of that to this point. Mary, the wife of the latest victim, would give birth to a healthy son that she named Joe in honor of the deceased father. And for a year, the cleaver, the axe man, whatever you want to call him, just seemed to vanish. Now, about a year later, May 16th, 1912, the silence is broken. A little bit different kind of case here, though. Grocer Tony and I'll probably butcher this name, Sharamia and wife Joanna and son Jake were awakened when they heard breaking glass as an intruder entered through a window. The intruder entered the house and shot the husband, Tony, five times with a revolver, killing him instantly. A few stray bullets had also hit his wife, Joanna, and she died 10 days later. The mafia was suspect in this hit, and for good reason. The shop owner, Tony Sharama's brother, had been in talks of selling the shop to a rival gang member with connections to a New York crime boss. And the local New Orleans thug named Joseph Mumra, who you'll hear about in a little bit later, obviously wasn't having any part of this. So again, this was not an axe. This was not a straight razor. This guy broke into a window, shot the guy five times. This just does not sound like our Axeman. That does not sound like the Axeman. Not, not the one that I've got. No, no. Once again, he returns on the night of December 22nd, 1917 for the fourth attack. We'll say the third because, as we said, the earlier one definitely was a mob hit. The home of F. Hana, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I apologize. F. Hanio and Anna Andalia and their family would fall victim. 16-year-old Mary 
was awakened to a blood-curdling cries and shrieks. She left her bedroom she shared with her four younger sisters and ran to her parents' room. There she found her father covered in blood and moaning in pain. Her first instinct was to run to his aid, but her mother screamed and stopped her. Get the children out of the house. Someone tried to kill your father. Young Mary obeyed without question and rushed back to her sister, starting to get the younger sisters out one by one. Mother Anna soon arrived with the youngest daughter and infant in her arms. The girls ran out into the streets and yelled for help. Anna later stated she was awakened by a man with a revolver and an axe or a hatchet, telling her to shut up as he attacked her husband, Effiano, striking him five times with the hatchet. The killer then turned and walked out of the room, leaving Mary, walked through the son's bedrooms where he struck the oldest boy in the back of the head with the hatchet, and he struck the younger son in the face with the revolver that he carried. Now, at the same time, the press had given the name The Hatchet Man to the same killer formerly known as The Cleaver, at this point not connecting the dots that they were probably one and the same. Both the boys survived their attacks. Father Effiano would live for 10 months, but finally died of the Spanish flu epidemic. The wounds he received most likely did contribute to his health and overall death. That's, that's kind of where, I guess, the official Axeman murders kind of start. Which, again, some of those earlier cases definitely sound like they're, you could chalk them up to being the same guy. But yeah, on May 23rd, 1918, Italian grocer Joseph Maggio and his wife Catherine were attacked while sleeping at home. Uh, the killer broke in and cut the couple's throats with a straight razor. Catherine's throat being cut so deeply that it was described her head was nearly severed. Ugh. Apparently, he bashed in their heads with an axe before he left. Joseph survived but died uh, within minutes after being found by his brothers Jake and Andrew. Apparently, Andrew had an adjoining apartment to his brother. He was awoken about two hours after the fact when he heard strange groaning sounds through the wall. They said he didn't hear when the attacks happened. I guess he'd been out the night before and he had tied one on with some friends. <laughs> a little bit of a drinking spree. Getting ready to join the Navy and just kind of partying it up before he left. And so he said he was just too drunk and he didn't hear it. Uh, he did, in fact, become the primary suspect, but police could find no fault in his statement. Uh, and he, you know, he, he had witnesses, I guess, and they just couldn't pick it apart. Uh, and Andrew himself also said that he had seen an unknown man lurking near the residence prior to the murder. So he had, he must have seen someone the night before or sometime earlier in the, the week. Now, uh, law enforcement did find bloody clothes in the house that apparently belonged to the murderer. And, of course, obviously people believe that he changed into clean clothes before fleeing the scene. Which seems like good form, you know. You don't right. want to be covered in blood when you leave. Uh, they did find the razor on the lawn of the neighboring property. And the razor was found who belonged to Andrew Maggio. Who was a barber, I believe. He was a barber by trade. And uh, apparently he had give, taken that razor to get, how do they say, to have the razor's blade honed. It had a nick in it. So sharpened. So he needed to get it sharpened. Yeah, serviced. Uh, but he had apparently taken it two days prior to get it sharpened. Police ruled out robbery as there were money and valuables in plain sight left to be grabbed. And, and the, the assailant did not grab them. And apparently somewhere near the home, written in chalk, they found the message, Mrs. Joseph Maggio will sit up tonight. Just right, Mrs. Tony. And no one really knows exactly what that means. Hmm. But that was the first of, of the, what, what was coined at the time as the Axeman murders. So then now, you have, again, you had mentioned there was, they said a, a great deal, whatever that might be of jewelry. Yeah. Openly left in the bedroom. Yep. They said there was an open safe that was in an adjacent room. They think possibly the safe had been opened already because uh, the Maggios had deposited uh, $650 in the bank the day before. Uh, you know, like I said, so that maybe that explained why the safe was open. But again, 
money didn't seem to be a, a big objective yeah. here. So we move to June 27th, 1918. Uh, Louis Bessemer and his mistress Harriet Lowe were attacked in the early morning hours. Uh, they were in his quarters at the back of his grocery store. Again, was again a grocer. A, a, Italian grocery store. Uh, he was struck with a hatchet above his right temple, uh, resulted in a possible skull fracture that was never properly documented. Lowe was attacked over her left ear and found unconscious on the scene. The couple was discovered shortly after 7 a.m. by a John Zonka. He was a driver of a bakery wagon who was out on his regular routine when he found the couple in a puddle of their own blood. Uh, they did find the axe which belonged to Bessemer, uh, found it was in the bathroom of the apartment. Yeah. So again, his own axe, and a lot of times it is the weapon. The weapon now, does belong to the person. I got to say, I mean, I guess at the time it wouldn't be that uncommon to, to everybody would have an axe or a weapon, but this guy doesn't even bring his own weapon. He just yeah. breaks into their house, apparently is not rushed, takes his time, <laughs> looks around, finds an axe, a hatchet, and then leaves it like mockingly yeah. You know, after he uses it. Bessemer stated to the police he was asleep when he was attacked. Now, the police did have a suspect in this one, and I'm going to probably say the name wrong, but a man by the name of Louis Ubicon. He was an African-American man employed in Bessemer's store. I guess he had been hired the week before the attacks. However, there was no evidence whatsoever to link him to the crime. Unfortunately, at that point in time in American history, it's probably very clearly that just he was an African-American fellow and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Same with the mental uh, drug user that they, they got earlier, yeah. Yeah, they arrested him anyway, stating that he offered conflicting accounts of his whereabouts the morning of the attack. Uh, Lowe actually later said that she was attacked by a mulatto man, and uh, robbery again was did not seem to be motivation for the attack. There were valuables left untouched. Um, I did find a, a, a clip where they interviewed uh, Louis Ubicon, and I thought it was kind of funny. He's like, well, why would I have done that? I was out of employment after that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he cost himself his job. One way or the other, yeah. that guy was out of a job. Yeah. He was later released by the police when they failed to gather enough evidence to be able to hold him accountable. Uh, now, media, the media jumped on Bessemer as, as a person of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, they found a series of letters in his home written in German, the, Russian, yeah, and this Yiddish. this took a, a strange twist. Uh, apparently, they were hidden in a trunk, and the police suspected he may be a German spy, yeah. and, and, and they arrested him for the case. Uh, he was released two days later, and the arresting uh, investigator was demoted due to what they <laughs> called unacceptable police work. Which again, I mean, who knows why he had those letters, but he, he, you know, you don't just immediately jump on the dude for being a spy, I guess. But yeah, they thought maybe he had killed his lover uh, because maybe she had uncovered the fact that he was the German spy, you know, undercover. Well, and apparently he was arrested again in August of 1918 and, and Harriet Lowe herself became the center of a media circus due to making scandalous and false comments relating to the tax and the Bessemer's character. She kind of put it off on him even. Well, and she is a mistress, not yeah. his wife. So, I mean, there's that. Now, one side of her face was partially paralyzed due to her injuries. And she herself died August 5th, 1918, after surgery to repair that damage. Mm. Uh, and as she lay dying in Charity Hospital, she stated it was Bessemer that attacked her with his hatchet. He was charged and he served nine months in prison before being acquitted on May 1st, 1918. Really, we're just going to have to talk about the very next case to show just how wrong that was. Because uh, the day she died, in the early evening hours of that same day, August 5th, 1918, Eight-month pregnant Anna Schneider awoke to find a dark figure standing over her. Yep. He bashed her in the face repeatedly. Uh, her scalp was cut open, and her face was just completely covered in blood uh, when she was discovered. She was discovered after midnight by her husband, Ed, who was returning home from work. She could remember nothing about the attack and gave birth two days after the incident. 
Her husband told the police nothing was stolen. They could find no evidence of forced entry. And the police determined that the attacker used the bedside table lamp to bash her in the head. Now, again, I'm, I'm going to say in, in past serial killer research that I've done, and, and I, I, you may have more to add here, it does seem a bit odd that a killer especially would go after a woman and disfigure the face. That's almost like a crime of passion type deal. I don't know. I just think that was odd. And it's not just the men. It's not just the women. He just seems to just go in and doesn't care. Well, he's, he's bashing everybody in the face. So but a couple of the women were pregnant and he does, for whatever reason, he may attack them, but he doesn't kill them. Yeah. No, he's, he's like I said, he's got a very consistent MO. A James Gleason, who was an ex-convict, was arrested shortly thereafter and, uh, and, and accused of the crime. He was later released due to lack of evidence and uh, stated the only reason he ran from authorities when questioned was because he'd been arrested so often. <laughs> he knew how that was going to end. Uh, it was at this point that police began to publicly speculate the cases that this particular case was related to Bessemer and Maggio cases. So the police now were starting to say, okay, we have a similar MO, similar events. And then uh, I think five days later. Yeah, apparently he's just really getting wound up because five days later on uh, August 10th, uh, we have the seventh for sure attack that could possibly be related. And that was with a Joseph Romerno. Uh, he was an elderly man who lived with his two nieces. Again, kind of a, a little bit different scenario here. On the morning, the girls, his nieces, were awakened to a commotion coming from their uncle's room. Finding Joseph Romano with the axe wound to the head, he remains conscious until the ambulance arrive. However, unfortunately, dies just a few days later. This attack seemed to follow suit more with the first and second attacks, unlike the attack on the pregnant lady. Joseph Romano was yet another Italian business owner, this time a local barber by trade. Uh, no straight razor was used, and the only weapon, once again, was an axe that was found on the property. Uh, however, this time the bloody weapon was found thrown into the neighbor's yard. Uh, also, once again, the entry to the residence uh, was had through prying a door panel out through a back or a side door, which, as we had stated, seems to be kind of a general trend and done previously. It was for sure at this time, as Bill said, the newspapers started leaking information out five days later. Uh, sheer panic started to embrace yeah. the city of New Orleans. The city was under attack by an axe-murdering serial killer. Panic evaded the city. Hundreds of reports began to come in uh, where people were saying they saw suspects carrying axes openly, uh, being spotted in different areas across the city. Parents stayed awake at night guarding their children and homes by whatever means necessary uh, as the city was in full-blown fear. Uh, still more reports and calls of random axes showing up in the yards of people, <laughs> uh, possibly as pranks or signs that they were nearly victims themselves that had just escaped the axe murderer. Apparently after that, there were axe-wielding maniacs everywhere you looked. Oh my gosh. And it seems the surge in acknowledgement may have uh, fed the ego of the axe man as it would be eight months before he would kill again. Some believe he simply sat back and watched as his work unfolded mass hysteria. All right, so so yeah, it was quite a while again before the X-Men attacked, and on the night of March 10th, 1919, screams were heard coming from the house of Charles and Rosie Cordomiglia. Uh, Orlando Giordano rushed across the street to help, and when he did, he found Charles, his wife, and their infant daughter Rosie had been attacked. Rosie stood in the doorway with a serious head wound, clutching her deceased daughter. Uh, Mary, the infant, had died from a single blow to the back of the neck. Charles lay on the floor, bleeding from another serious head wound. The couple were rushed to Charity Hospital, where it was documented that both had suffered from skull fractures that night. 
Uh, nothing was stolen from the home. A panel on the back door had been removed with a chisel. A bloody axe was found on the back porch. So again, you've got this similar MO, the, the, the door panel, the discarded weapon. Uh, Charles was released from the hospital two days later, um, but his wife did remain in the hospital. Now on this one, I think it's worth mentioning, this was not in New Orleans. This was in Gretna, Louisiana. He had went across the Mississippi River. So this was where he had kind of started to maybe fan out a little yeah. bit more. Yeah. Upon regaining consciousness, Rosie claimed that Giordano and his 18-year-old son, Frank, were the ones responsible for the attacks. Orlando was a 69-year-old man, and he was determined to be in too poor of health to be able to commit the crime. Uh, Frank, the son, was over six feet tall and over 200 pounds, and they said he was much too large to fit through the, dis- the yeah. dislodged door panel. Yeah. Charles himself denied his wife claims, but the two men got were arrested regardless. That was uh, that, That's just crazy. Yeah. I'm sorry. I mean, your yeah. neighbors come to aid you, and you're going to accuse them of being, wow. Yeah, they, uh, but they were arrested. The two men were arrested. They were found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang, and his father was sentenced to life in prison. Charles divorced his wife after the trial was over. I guess he kind of, he was not okay with this. And almost a year later, Rosie herself admitted she had falsely accused the father and son out of jealousy and spite. Well, they were competition. Yeah. They both owned grocery stores. Both were Italian families. But again, just, just wow. I, yeah. I had read that she came up with several stories trying to explain why she did this. One was she said the police told her to state that it was the family next door that did it. One of the judges told her to stick with that story or it would uh, it would put her in contempt of court where she had said something and then was basically going to go back on it. But then I had, I had read where another judge took over and she questioned him and he said, well, you immediately have to come clean on this. Yeah. And yet the... Last story was she believed she was visited in a dream by St. George, who told her <laughs> to save your soul. You need to come clean for what you have well, said. Well, luckily she did, and uh, both men were released from jail shortly after that. Wow. So about three days later, a letter is published in the paper, uh, in, in, in local papers. <laughs> and just wow. Yeah, claiming to be from the Axeman himself, and it made New Orleans society go crazy. The contents of the letter converted many citizens of New Orleans into jazz fans overnight. <laughs> Uh, and on the night of the 19th, all the New Orleans jazz halls, discos, bars, and honky-tonks were filled with both professional and amateur jazz bands that played until dawn, and there were no murders that night. Now, I have here a copy of the letter that was sent to the New Orleans paper, and let me tell you. This is some twisted stuff, And people. I'm, I'm going to read this. This is the absolutely straight quotes, supposedly from the Axeman himself, and I'm going to say supposedly because we don't really know. The letter is addressed hell, March 13th, 1919. Esteemed mortal... They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axe Man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, your Linians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, 
but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I'm very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee, I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that have ever existed, either in fact or realm of fantasy. Signed, The Axeman. Pardon my French. Who the hell writes like this? I know. It's insane. That is like somebody from 200 years ago writing, and some of the quotes, just wow. But again, every place that could play music was playing jazz that night, So, and then and there are no listed murders for that day. Yeah. As you said, you know, the newspaper did print the letter on the 13th. The event uh, forewarned was on the following 19th. Uh, What happened on that exact night is a bit murky, to say the least, with countless exaggerations and folklore. But the story is the entire city of New Orleans did, in fact, jazz it up. Yep. Uh, All through the night, uh, even in the homes, they had Victrolas and record players playing. Local pubs and bars, as you stated, were overflowing. Some theorize the Axeman probably just walked through the cities that evening, partaking of the jazz music he so loved and rivaled that he had got the entire city to do his bidding. That's, that's, that's crazy. Now, again, as you said, that night was, everybody was safe. Uh, but I have down at least three more attacks occurred that same year in 1919. So the three targets were a Steve Boca, a Sarah Lawman, and a Mike Peppertone. Now, both Boca and Lawman were both attacked, but managed to make enough noise to receive help and survived. However, when were unable to give much more details on their attacker. Uh, the third, Mike Peppertone's story, is a bit more uncertain. He was found by his wife at approximately 1 a.m. The murder weapon was unclear. While it could have been an axe, no axe could be found. It could also have been an iron bar or similar item, which was not found, leaving it to total speculation. Well, and, and the, the savagery of the assault left the room splattered in blo- blood. Uh, and I even made a note to say that there was a painting of the Virgin Mary. Covered in blood. Covered in blood. And he did not survive. He A couple hours later, he actually passed away in, in the hospital. And he left behind his wife, who was a mother of six. Wow. Now, regardless, the Axeman of New Orleans disappeared shortly thereafter and was never to be heard from again. Several possibilities lend themselves to this fact. Uh, number one, he could have been arrested for a different crime and removed from the streets. Uh, secondly, maybe he simply moved on to another town or city. Or three, he possibly died. His identity, as we had stated, has never been established. But there is one popular belief among historians and speculators, and that is the man by the name of Joseph Mumfra I mentioned earlier. He wasn't on the police's radar, really, for any reasons. But he was gunned down in December of 1921, several years after, in the streets of Los Angeles, California. His killer was Esther Peppertone, the widow wife of Mike Peppertone, considered to be the last victim of the Axeman. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, that happened in Los Angeles? Los Angeles. 
Los Angeles, California. Under police interrogation, Mrs. Peppertone uh, had stated Joseph Mumfra was, in fact, the man that did kill her husband, and she was getting revenge. Since that time, Joseph Mumfra has become a popular theory. Uh, However, evidence does not really support that. Uh, Newspaper articles, if you dig into it a bit deeper, actually contradicts that. It states that Esther Peppertone was, in fact, the killer, but she suspected him in the disappearance of her second husband, not her first husband, (laughs) Mike, that was from New Orleans. It was later found out that Joseph Mumfra and her second husband were mafia-related. Like you said, I mean, we don't really know who the Axeman was. Nope. But it is, of course, you know, New Orleans would not be New Orleans if we didn't take a moment to talk about the ghosts that the Axeman left behind. To this day, the house where Joseph and Catherine Maggio were murdered is said on certain nights. People in the area have heard screams and shrieks from the home. Uh, The hospital where Joseph Romano was treated is said to be haunted by his restless spirit. And, of course, probably the the most haunting of all, depending on how you feel. Uh, From March 13th to 15th every year, it is tradition in New Orleans to play jazz in most pubs and clubs, at least at one time throughout the night to keep the the spirit of the Axeman at bay. And I got to admit, not a big fan of jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let him hear you say that. We may never know the truth or identity behind the Axeman, but I invite you to pause each time you hear that old jazz music. That fear, without face nor name, may be listening from the shadows, beckoning you to remember him. We hope you enjoyed yet another installment regarding serial killers. It's just another example of what you'll find here on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Okay, what are we doing? Uh, Axeman. So right, you you've got a I've intro? got the intro for this one. All right. I'll take a stab at it. <laughs> well, okay, that doesn't really apply to that. <laughs> nah. just bash dudes in the head. Hack and slash. <laughs> We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, and I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.